Well, good morning. Good to see everybody today. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving this week. I want to begin with a story because I've been thinking about food coming off the holiday. But in the 1930s, there was a gentleman by the name of Irving Naxon. Irving was a, a Jewish engineer. He was the very first Jewish engineer in the company of Western Electric's history. In the 30s, he was trying to think of a device that he could invent, that his company could patent, that he could make a name for himself. And so he remembered the stories that his mother told him about their Jewish ancestors living in Eastern Europe and about how they made their famous Jewish cholent. Cholent's kind of a stew-like dish that many Jews would eat on the Sabbath when they weren't allowed to cook. And so the way that his mom told him that they would prepare it is that they would take their, their uh, clay pots, which they called crocks, they would put some meat and some potatoes, some vegetables and some beans in there. They would take their crocks into the town bakeries and they would ask the bakeries if they could put their crocks in their ovens that had been turned off but were still warm from cooking all, all the foods over the course of the day. Well, that low and slow heat would kind of cook everything in the crock. And when the Jews would return the next day to retrieve their crocks, they would be able to eat this fantastic stew without having broken the Sabbath rules and having cooked on the Sabbath. So as Irving was thinking about that, he thought, I wonder if I can do the same thing without people having to put the crock into an oven. He invented the crock pot. Crock-Pot was kind of the kitchen appliance of the 70s. In 1971, there was only about $2 million worth of sales. But by 1975, just four years later, sales in the United States alone would cross $100 million annually. Americans fell in love with the Crock-Pot. Well, if the Crock-Pot was the kitchen appliance of the 70s, the kitchen appliance of the 80s and 90s was no doubt this baby, the microwave which I have a debt of gratitude I owe to the microwave because it kept me alive in college. This thing and ramen noodles. The microwave was invented by a gentleman named Percy Spencer. Percy was a physicist by trade who worked for the Department of Defense on radar technology. He was trying to understand how to weaponize radar and how radar tubes gave off microwaves. And so he's running these experiences, experiments. And one day, Percy discovered that the, the microwaves that were being given off by the radar tube he was working on melted the chocolate candy bar he had in his front pants pocket. We've all been there, right? <laughs> You know, look down, you got the candy bar melted in your pocket because of the radar tube you're working on. Yeah, we've all been there. So Percy was like, huh, that's interesting. These microwaves give off heat that when they're absorbed by other things, it heats them up. And that was the birth of the microwave. As I said, while the, while the kitchen appliance of the 70s was the crock pot, in the 80s and 90s, the microwave was exploding into American kitchens. And by 1997, over 90% of American households had a microwave in their kitchen. We love the microwave. Even to this day, we are, I don't know that there's a kitchen appliance that better, you know, pictures or, or, or illustrates the American population in the microwave. We hate to wait. We love things fast. We want it as soon as possible. We don't want any lag in, in waiting. And so the, the, the microwave really represents us incredibly well. I experienced this this week because uh, like we do every year for Thanksgiving, my family loaded into the family car and we drove the nine hours from where we live here in Sun Prairie to my parents' house in Ohio to celebrate Thanksgiving with all of my brothers and sisters and their family and the nieces, nephews, the whole family gathers back at my parents' house. Well, we love to drive as a family. My family really does great in the car. We've been doing it their whole life. So the kids are used to it. We're all good. 
But the one thing I hate about driving to Ohio is that every time we drive to or from Ohio, we have to cross the great purgatory that is Chicago traffic. I don't know what it is about this city. It's a great city, but the traffic in Chicago makes you want to pull your hair out, right? Because there is nothing worse than stopping on an interstate. You're just like, I'm supposed to be going fast here. Like this is a microwave road. What am I doing? So like sitting still. And the harsh part about, about stop and go traffic is that you don't know why you're stopped on the interstate. You can't see past the 14 cars in front of you. So you have no idea what's causing the delay. You have no idea when it's going to end or even if it's going to end. You might only be there for a few seconds. You might die waiting in your car 90 years from now because you don't ever get out of there, right? The whole time you're sitting in stop and go traffic, you sit there just praying secretly, God, please don't let anyone realize they have to go to the bathroom right now, right? Because you're like, what would I do? I don't know. We hate to wait. The problem is that in so many ways, as you walk through your life in relationship with God, you discover we are a microwave people in a relationship with a crockpot God. It's not actually anything new. As you read through the scriptures, you discover that the people of God have have experienced this from the beginning of time. In the first century, after Jesus rose from the dead, he gathered his disciples together and he said, here's the deal. He said, I'm going I'm to use you. I want you to spread out. I want you to tell people around the world about me. But just know I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back for you. And so Jesus ascended into heaven and the, the followers of Jesus got to work. They started spreading out and telling people about, about Jesus and about, you know, living life in, in, with, in a relationship with God through Jesus. Well, what we discover is as the decades passed, the people of God started to get pretty antsy and they started to, to wonder like, God, what are you waiting for? It's been 20 years. You said you were coming back. Like, where are you? Like, surely, like, did you get delayed? Like, what, what's taking so long, God, that you haven't come back yet? And so the half-brother of Jesus, James, thinks, I've got to remind these people what Jesus lived and taught and, and this idea of patience. And so he says, listen, as people of God, you got to be patient. And this is actually how he articulates it in what we call the epistle of James. But James chapter five, he writes to them and I think to us, and he says, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient. Over the last few weeks, we've been in a series titled Easier Said Than Done, where we're talking about a variety of things that we as followers of Jesus are called to do that are simply easier said than done. Things like just forgive, just tell the truth, just don't worry about it, just believe. And today we want to talk about this incredible challenge, just be patient. It's easier said than done. Now, as you think about waiting, though, I think there are at least three types of waiting. The first type of waiting is the type of waiting that's short-lived and it's annoying, but it's not really much beyond that. I'm talking about the kind of waiting that you do on a Saturday night when you order pizza for delivery and it's like an hour later and the pizza still hasn't come. You know what I'm talking about? You're hungry. You're like, man, I've been looking forward to this tomato pie for the last 60 minutes. I'm starving. Where's the delivery driver with my pizza? And you feel impatient. 
I went to the movies with my kids this week on Thanksgiving. It's kind of a tradition. We do the big thing at, at lunchtime, at noon, we eat Thanksgiving dinner. By afternoon, a lot of times we're ready to do something, so we get out of the house, we go to the movies. And so we loaded up, went to the movies, and uh, we got there about 20 minutes early. And of course, my kids ask what they always ask, and they said, Dad, can we get popcorn? And I thought about it for a second, and I said, sure, because I love spending $57 on a basket of popcorn and two drinks. So we get in line for the popcorn, and I mean, the line is like 50 people long. But I'm like, this isn't a big deal. We've got 20 minutes. We're here so early. And, uh, but, but the line was not moving quickly. And so about every five minutes, I'd be looking at my watch, and I was like, the movie's going to start. Like, come on. Like, just give the people the popcorn. Let's go. Like, can we pick it up a little bit? I was getting really antsy, really impatient, because I don't want to miss the beginning of a movie. So many movies. Like, the beginning scene is key. And so I just keep thinking, I'm going to miss this movie. Well, finally, like, like the movie is supposed to start right now. It's supposed to start on the hour. It's five after the hour. We're still like three families away from getting our popcorn. And I'm kind of losing it inside until God reminded me, hey, bro, you're teaching on patience this weekend. Like, you better check yourself. So that was okay. We got our popcorn. We got into the movie about 10 minutes late. And no kidding, I looked at my watch and we had to still sit through 27 minutes of previews. Like we had all the time in the world. I was like, wow, okay. So that type of waiting we get, like it's, you just got to realize, you got to relax. Like there's some things that that are annoying, but it's not much more than that. There's a second type of waiting that is is bigger than that. It's more significant than that, but it's also, um, it's also waitable. It's also understandable. Like we get it. Like let's say you want a certain career path. And so, you know, to work in that industry, you're going to have to get a degree. And so, you know, I've got to take two years of classes. I've got to take four years of classes. Maybe it's a, a career that requires a graduate level degree. And you're thinking, I got like six or eight years of training ahead of me. Like, but so there's some waiting in that because you've got to wait four years, six years, whatever, until you get to do the work that you want to do. And yet, that's understandable and, and that's waitable. It's, it's somewhat easy to be patient in that. And here's why. This is important. There's two reasons that make that, like, it allows you to be patient. The first one is that you can see the progress, right? You check the classes off your list as you make your way through the requirements for the degree and you see yourself moving closer and closer to graduation day when you will have the credentials you need to do the thing that you want to do. So you see the progress and that helps you be patient. The second reason that it's okay to be patient in that situation is because you're in control. You're the one choosing the classes. You're the one who chose to, in, to get this degree. You're the one doing the homework and the research and the learning and writing the papers. So you see the progress along the journey towards the end goal. But you have to be patient. But then there's a third type of waiting. And this is the type of waiting that I want us to think more deeply about today. This is the type of waiting that is not just simply annoying and it's not uh, endurable because you're in control. This is the type of waiting that is significant. And this is the type of waiting that is painful. This is the type of waiting that if, if left to our own and we're really honest about it, this is the type of waiting that will leave you feeling deeply discouraged and abandoned by God. I'm talking about the times when you feel like you should be somewhere in your life that you're not there yet. Like you have always dreamed of, of falling in love with somebody and settling down and spending your life with your one, with your soulmate. And yet here you are at an age where you thought you would have been long married by now, but you're not, and you're not even dating anybody. 
And you feel like, God, if this is going to happen, like, like, could you hurry it up a little bit? Like, let, let's get on with it. It's been stewing in the crock pot long enough. And yet every year goes by and you celebrate another birthday and you're still single. I'm talking about the seasons of life where you feel like you've been praying and asking God for a child for decades. Where you pictured your life since you were a little kid and you, you saw your home filled with love and happiness and the noise and activity of little kids running around and you knew, I'm going to be such a great mom. I'm going to be such a great dad. I can't wait to have children of my own. And you are married and you have settled down and you're in a place where you're ready for kids and you keep trying, but you can't seem to conceive. And you've done all the things that the doctors have told you to do and you've spent all the money that you have and yet there is still no child and your home is still quiet and you are left wondering, God, what is going on? There are those seasons where you feel like you thought you would be further in your career than you are by now. You look at where you're at and you look at your financial situation and you realize this is not where I thought I would be. That I thought by now I would have climbed the ladder at least a little further. It's not like I'm trying to live my life just to climb the ladder, but I thought that, that, that life would be easier financially because I'd be making more money because I'd be at a certain spot in my career. I've been doing this a while. I have the credentials. I have the experience. I have the work resume. Why am I not making more money? Why have I not made it further? You feel like I've got a boss who doesn't recognize my contributions. I work for a company that isn't going anywhere. Do I need to leave? Do I need to jump ship? Do I need to make a change? Do I need to stay the course? Am I going to break through? God, I've got to break through this glass ceiling, but I can't do it on my own. I need you to help me out here, Lord. And you find yourself waiting. And in a million different scenarios that are unique to your life, all of us have seasons of our life where we find ourselves waiting and it is deeply discouraging because we are not in control and because we do not see the progress. And in these moments of tension between being a microwave people, living with a, a crockpot God, there's some questions about how we handle that and how we go about just being patient. The good news is that we're not the first people of God to live in this tension. In fact, the very earliest people of God lived in this tension. And so where I want to go this morning as we talk about this, this thing that is so much easier said than done is I want to look at the story of the nation of Israel and specifically the Exodus. And as we look at the Exodus and as we kind of fly over it from a high level, I want to make two quick observations. I want to give you a word of warning while you wait. And I want to leave you with a promise of hope. And so that's where we're going to go in the time that we have left together this morning. We're going to talk about the story of Israel. I'm going to give you two observations, a word of caution, and I want to leave you with a promise of hope. If you remember the story of the nation of Israel, it begins with a promise that God made to a man named Abraham. He said, Abraham, you're going to have a bunch of descendants. They're going to be my people. I will be their God, and they will be the people through whom I bless all the people on earth. He said that to Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So Israel was literally Abraham's grandson. Israel, the man, had 12 sons of his own. Well, the first 11 were jealous of the 12th, so they sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt where he climbs up the ranks and becomes number two in control of the nation of Egypt behind Pharaoh himself. 
There's a famine that strikes the area where Israel and his 11 sons and all of their families were living. And so they realize that there's food to be had in Egypt and Israel relocates the family and all of the branches of the family into Egypt. They're reunited with the 12th brother. The 12 brothers all have their own families that grow and expand. Pharaoh passes away. A new Pharaoh comes onto the throne. He doesn't remember the conversations that had been had before him. He doesn't remember Joseph. He doesn't remember where these Hebrew people came from, but he sees them growing and prospering. So he takes them as slaves of his nation. The 12 tribes of Israel spend the next 430 years in slavery in Egypt, waiting for God to create in them this great nation. Well, finally, when the time was right, God taps a man named Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to be the one to lead my people into the promised land. Moses, of course, was a crockpot guy. So Moses thinks, I got to get this started now. He sees an Egyptian abusing, mistreating a Hebrew, one of his fellow Hebrews. So Moses takes it on himself to kill the Egyptian. God says, whoa, 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 what are you doing, Moses? Moses, you don't understand. I'm a crockpot God. You got to check yourself here. He leads Moses into the wilderness and Moses spends the next 40 years waiting for crockpot God to tell him it's time to go get the people and to lead them out of slavery in Egypt. Moses goes to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. That's what God wants you to hear is let my people go. Moses, uh, Pharaoh says, no, Moses, I'm not doing it. God sends the plagues. And by the last plague, Pharaoh calls Moses in and he is like, get your people out of here. Now, you would think the people would be pumped about this. It's like a 12-day journey from Egypt to what would become the promised land. That's how long it should take from them to walk out of Egypt and to land in the promised land. But this is what we read beginning in Exodus chapter 13. When Pharaoh finally let the people go... God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The first observation that I want to make about when we're waiting is that there is more to the story than we can see. There is always more to the story than we can see. For the nation of Israel, when they were being led out of Egypt by Moses, I'm sure they thought, why don't we take the main road that leads straight from here to where we're going? But God did not lead them on the main road. In fact, we know as we read through the book of Exodus, you can kind of draw a map. This is the route that they took. That red line is the, is the path that they took. Instead of simply walking up and to the right there around the Mediterranean Sea into what would become the, the promised land, God leads them south. They go the wrong way. Along the way, there are twists and turns. There are encampments. At one point, they double back to where they had already been. They spend an extended period of time there, years there, going, what is going on? God, when are we going to get to the promised land? But what they didn't know was that this whole journey in a roundabout way began because God was protecting them. God wasn't punishing them. He was protecting them. If he had led them through the main road, they would have had to have gone through Philistine territory and they they weren't ready for battle. They had been slaves just yesterday. They weren't warriors yet. God knew I can't lead them on that main road. I've got to protect them. 
And in our own lives, there are times in our life where it's possible that the waiting that we're doing is, is happening, not because God is punishing you, but because God is protecting you. You don't get that job promotion because that job promotion would cause you to move across the country, but your kids are at a stage in their life where moving across the country would be really bad for them. And so God is, is making you wait for the promotion because he's trying to protect you and your family. There are so many other ways that this could be true, that God is not punishing you, but he's protecting you. And even when he's not protecting you, in so many other ways, it could be true that it's just simply the reality that you see a sliver of the picture while God sees the whole thing. You don't realize the overarching narrative that you're part of and what God is doing in your life. For the nation of Israel, they were part of this meta-narrative of Scripture. The meta-narrative of Scripture is the creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the overarching narrative of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Well, the nation of Israel during the Exodus was in that redemption chapter, but that's a really long chapter. That was a, a really long period of time. That is a really long period of time. And so what they didn't realize at the time was all of the things that God was doing in order to set up what was to come. And in our life, it is the same way where we think we know where we're headed. We think we know what we're doing, but we don't realize like we don't know what we don't know. And so there are times in our life where we feel like we know where we're supposed to go and we pray and we're like, God, here's the step that I need to get there. There's the next step that I need to get there. Would you just, would you just grant my wish? Would you just fulfill this prayer? Would you just say yes to get me there? And the reality is that the famous theologian Garth Brooks was right when he said some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Yeah, you guys went to the church of country music like I did. Some of God's greatest gifts. What a fantastic song. What a theologically deep country song. You don't say that all the time, but what a theologically deep country song that is. Some of God's greatest gifts are the prayers that he does not answer. And why does he not answer them? Because he sees a bigger picture than you and I can see. I remember... Uh, pastor and author Craig Rochelle is fond of saying that you and I will overestimate what God wants to do in the short term in our lives, but we will underestimate what God wants to do in our lives in the long term. We will overestimate what God wants to do in the short term. We will underestimate what he wants to do in the long term. And I have found that to be so true because we are a microwave people we want God to do it now. We want to make the impact now. We want to see our legacy being built right now. But the reality is that, that God is a God that takes his time. He's not in a hurry. And part of the reason that he's not in a hurry is because of the second observation we can make from the nation of Israel's exodus, and that is that simply God prepares us in the waiting. God was preparing the nation of Israel. They were a slave, uh, a, a uh, slave people. They were 12 tribes of people that knew nothing but slavery. They were about to establish a new nation in a new place. God had to give them all of the instructions on how to run a country. He had to give them laws to follow and, and details on their faith and the tabernacle and the sacrificial system to make atonement for their sins. God had to prepare them in so many ways. And in just about every single story we see in scripture about God doing something great with somebody's life, there is always a period of waiting. When he said, Moses, you're going to lead the people out of Egypt. 
First, he spent 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd, being prepared, being shaped and molded into the man who God could use. When the prophet Samuel anointed David, young David, as the next king of Israel, David was just 15 years old. Imagine if a famous prophet anointed your brother king when he was 15 years old. What a bear he probably would have been to live with. But, but David didn't become king at 15. He didn't become king until he was 30. He had to wait 15 years knowing, I have been anointed the king of this people. But he had to wait because God was preparing him. For the disciples, Jesus said, hey, I'm about to ascend into heaven. But when I do, I want you to get to work. I want you to tell people about me. I want you to tell people about the opportunity to live life in relationship with God the Father through me. But he said, before you do it, after I ascend, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into Jerusalem and I want you to huddle up. And I want you to bunker down and I want you to wait. I want you to wait until my Father pours out his Holy Spirit on you. And only after you have waited and received the Holy Spirit, then I want you to go get to work. So the disciples waited, even the apostle Paul. Jesus stops him on the road to Damascus. He radically changes his life. Paul puts his faith in Jesus. And then he says to, to Paul, he says, listen, I want you to be the guy who takes the gospel message, the story of me, to the Gentiles, to all the non-Jewish people. That's a big calling. You would think Paul would be eager to get to work, but instead of going up to Jerusalem and meeting with the other apostles, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter one that the first thing he did was he went away to Arabia and Damascus and he stayed away for three years as God prepared him for the calling that was on his life. And in your life as well, it is very possible that God will give you a glimpse of the future. He will give you a taste of what is to come. And while you will be so excited to get started fulfilling that calling and that vision on your life, there will be a period of waiting. But it's not a period that is wasted. It is a period that is, that is being used to prepare you. And so what we see is that waiting time is not wasted time in the economy of God. Time spent waiting is never time that is wasted. We have our plan and our route, and then you have God's. I love this meme that shows, here's my plan, kind of a nice linear straight line to the finish line, and then you have God's plan. And it's filled with ups and downs. It's filled with rocks in the, in the way. You're going to have to go across some bridges. You're going to have to boat. You're going to have to learn to row. You're going to have some storms that you weather. But in the end, you will get where God wants you to go. It will just take a different route than you think it should take to get there. And this is reflective of so many of our lives. But the reality is that it is possible to get lost in the ups and downs. And so here's my word of caution for you this morning. As you enter into those seasons of waiting, be careful what you worship while you wait. Be careful what you worship while you wait. I want to read an extended passage from the book of Exodus. This is where God has invited Moses to come up on the mountain so that he could download and to give Moses the law, so that he could give Moses all the instructions on how to lead this nation into the promised land and how they should run their, their government once they get there. Well, Moses is up on the mountain for almost six weeks. And while he's gone, the people get kind of antsy. So they turn to Aaron, who is the number two in charge. And they, they start to change who they worship. Look at this. This is Exodus 32. We read that when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. 
So Aaron said, take the gold rings from, your ear, from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were. So he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. You were created to worship. All of us were created to worship something or someone. We live our lives naturally proclaiming the goodness of whatever it is that we're enjoying in the moment. Sometimes when I eat a great steak, like a really fantastic steak or, or like some really great pot roast that was cooked in one of these guys, I sit there and I just go, mmm, yes, love it. I'd say that out loud and my wife is always like, you are so weird. But I'm just like, hey, I was made to worship. Like, this is good, right? Now, we don't actually worship food and none of us actually worship gold or 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 rings or anything like that. Like we would never make a golden calf out of it. But this is what's crazy. The way that the Israelites got all this gold to melt down and to make this calf was because of God's provision. As they were leaving Egypt, God said, you're going to need some money when you establish this new nation in the promised land. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to make the plague so bad that the, the Egyptians will want you to leave so badly that on your way out, all you have to do is ask them, hey, can I have some gold? And they'll say, take whatever you want. Just get out of here right now. And in doing so, you'll be able to plunder the Egyptians without having to do anything more than ask them. And so the gold that they melted down to make this calf that they would start to worship instead of the one true living God was not the provider, but the provision. They started to worship the creation, not the creator. And in the same way, in these seasons where we are tempted to wait, we are tempted to look to the left and to the right. We are tempted to run after other gods and other things that promise to help and other things that promise to get us where we want to be faster because we don't want to wait, because we're done waiting and because we don't see any progress. And so we are left to wonder, maybe I missed it. Maybe God's not there. Maybe God's not helping me. And sometimes even without realizing that we will start to worship things other than the one true living God. And so in those seasons when you are waiting, I want to encourage you to lean into your relationship with God rather than to pull back away from it. That is easier said than done, but that makes all the difference in the world when you do that. So while you're waiting, remember that there is more to the story than you can see. Remember that God will use the waiting to prepare you. Pay attention to what it is that you worship while you wait. And for those of you who are in a season of waiting this morning, I want to leave you with the promise of hope. I recognize that some of you this morning are listening to this and you know I'm talking to you because you're in a season where you feel like you have been waiting so long and your waiting has caused you to feel deeply forgotten by God. And if that's you, I simply want to remind you that God hasn't abandoned you. God hadn't abandoned the nation of Israel or the 12 tribes of Israel at this point, and he hasn't abandoned you either. 
that he is with you and he will care for you. And he will reveal that in small ways, often on if you will look for it. For the nation of Israel in, in Exodus 13, we see, we see that the, the, the people needed to be led in the, in the wilderness. So God provided a pillar of cloud to lead them by day. We read about how at night they were afraid because it was so dark and they're in the middle of nowhere. They're out in the wilderness alone. And so God illuminates a cloud with fire by night. It literally is like the history's first nightlight. We read in Exodus 16 about how the people were hungry. And so God provided manna from heaven. It was bread that they collected each morning to eat because God was willing to provide for them in a miraculous way. We read about how they wanted meat to eat. They didn't want to just eat bread. And so God provided quail each evening. We read in Exodus 17 about how they were thirsty. They were in a desert. And so God provided water for them miraculously. And in a million other ways, God let them know, I haven't abandoned you. And right before Moses hands off the baton of leadership and the people of Egypt or the people of Israel eventually enter into the promised land, God gives Moses one last message for the people. And Moses gathers 600,000 plus people around him. And he says, listen, this is what God wants you to know as you enter the promised land. He said, I am your God and I will never leave you and I will never abandon you and I will be with you everywhere you go. And you fast forward into the first century and the people of Jesus are starting to feel frustrated. They're starting to feel forgotten about. They're starting to feel like maybe Jesus isn't coming back. And the author of Hebrews leaves them with this message. He says, let me remind you what God said to the people of Israel during the Exodus. And the writer of Hebrews said to those Christians in the first century, he said, God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. And God is with you everywhere you go. And this morning, for any of you that are in a season of waiting, can I just remind you of the same thing, that God will never leave you and that God will not forsake you and that God will be with you everywhere you go. And so this morning, I want to give you a simple prayer to pray when you are in a season of waiting and you can't see what God is doing and you don't know if there's any progress happening and you don't understand why any of it's happening. I want to invite you to pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, while I'm waiting, show me you're with me. Heavenly Father, while I'm waiting, show me you're with me. Heavenly Father, while I'm waiting, would you show me that you're with me? If you will pray that prayer, I believe that while you might not get to see the big picture, and while it might not speed up any of God's plans, I believe that God will answer that prayer that he will say yes to that because God promises to never leave you and he promises to never abandon you and forsake you and he promises that he will be with you everywhere you go. If you pray, God, would you show me that you're still with me? He will give you small, small windows, small nudges, small insights, small miracles, small, small whispers in your ear that show you he has not left you, that he is still on his throne that he still cares about the details of your life and that he is still with you. And if you will do that in these seasons of waiting, you will be the people of whom the prophet Isaiah foresaw when he wrote these words. He said, they who wait upon the Lord, those who will wait upon the Lord, they will get new strength. 
They will rise up with wings like eagles. You ever see an eagle? I saw an eagle the other day while I was out walking with my dog, this majestic eagle that was just soaring overhead. He said, those who will wait upon the Lord will get new strength. They will rise up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weak. If you will wait on God, eventually you'll start to understand what's going on. You'll experience his energy and his peace if you will be patient. Now, I recognize that that's much easier said than done. All of these things that we've been talking about in this series are easier said than done. And that's why we are in it together. That's why there are other people who are in this and on this journey with you. That's why we talk so much about building relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ because we recognize that there are going to be seasons of your life where you need to lean on other people and there will be seasons in their lives where they need to lean on you. And life is done better in the context of community. So as you lean into your relationship with God, in those seasons when you're waiting, let me encourage you to also lean into your relationships with each other. And in doing so, God will be glorified and more people will be awakened to life in him. Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, we know that you invite us to just be patient. But God, that is so much easier said than done. So when we're in those seasons that are deeply discouraging and we feel like there's no progress, would you help us to remember that there's more to the story than we can see? That you use the periods of waiting to prepare us? Lord, would you help us to be cautious around what it is that we allow our hearts to worship? And Lord, would our period of waiting be filled with an awareness that you are still with us, that you won't leave us or forsake us, but that you'll be with us everywhere we go. And as a result, would our lives be glorifying to you? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody who agreed said, amen.